What's up, boys and girls? It's your boy Tony from the Dan Levitard Show, and you are listening to the Fan Levitard Show. We've got a great episode for you this week. But before we get into that, this is your reminder to follow the show if you have not done so already. Also, I see the numbers. I know how many of you are listening. And when I compare that number to the number of five-star reviews we have on Apple Podcasts, something just isn't lining up. So if you listen to the show, if you enjoy the show, take a minute to review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really goes a long way in helping the show grow. Now, without out of the way, today's guest is a best-selling author and basketball expert. But more importantly, he has tremendous insights into the historic Chicago Bulls teams with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And with Scottie Pippen's recent assault on MJ's legacy, it felt right to bring on an expert to discuss what the hell is happening. So, I hope you all enjoy this interview with author Roland Lazenby. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is someone who I have known for quite a long time, dating back to my college days. He's the one who got me interested in journalism and sports writing altogether, and I owe a lot to him. And he is going to um, come on the show and hopefully share with us some interesting tidbits because a lot has been going on with Scottie Pippen as he tries to eviscerate everything that Michael Jordan has pretty much ever said or done. So... Welcoming in to the show, Roland Lazenby. He is the author of Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant, Jerry West, The Life and Legend of a Basketball Icon, and Michael Jordan, The Life. Roland, welcome into the show. Thank you so much for joining us. First question, important question. You good? I'm good. Nathan, you good? I'm good. Ty, you good? I'm good. Um, All right, so Scottie Pippen recently released his memoir unguarded and in there he has a lot to say about michael jordan and the last dance documentary which helped get us all through 2020 in the in the pandemic um i want to read a quick excerpt from the prologue of pippin's book and i'd like your reaction to it roland so this is in the prologue of unguarded by scotty pippin in the doc, Michael attempted to justify the occasions in which he berated a teammate in front of the group. He felt these guys needed to develop the toughest to get past the NBA's most physical teams. Seeing again how poorly Michael treated his teammates, I cringed as I did back then. Michael was wrong. We didn't win six championships because he got on guys. We won in spite of his getting on guys. We won because we played team basketball, which hadn't been the case in my first two seasons when Doug Collins was our coach. That's what was special about playing for the Bulls, the camaraderie we established with one another. Not that we felt blessed to be on the same team with the immortal Michael Jordan. I was a much better teammate than Michael ever was. Ask anyone who played with the two of us. I was always there with a pat on the back or an encouraging word, especially after he put someone down for one reason or another. I helped the others to believe in and stop doubting themselves. Roland, when I read that quote to you, um... What is your initial reaction to what Scotty is saying there? Well, without putting a value judgment on what led to winning, I would say it's 100% accurate. I, I think you can debate what kind of role Michael played in winning or how large, uh, more specifically, 
what kind of role his um, ferocity and his unbridled anger could play in winning. Um, you know, Scotty, it's pretty much agreed Scotty was the best teammate. Um, Steve Kerr had long held that position. And in interviews for my book uh, on Michael Jordan, uh, Steve said as much. Uh, he said, Scotty was a good teammate because he was human. Michael was not human. You know, the Last Dance series, I, um, I spent traveling and covering the Bulls. And I wrote a book called Blood on the Horns about the breakup of the Bulls. It was a USA Today number one bestseller. The only time I'd ever got that in my life. Way to fit but that one was, in, Roland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was um, all about all of the inside stuff and the, the things that, that people were saying. Uh, I do think uh, there's some score settling here, some of it from long ago, some of it from the Last Dance docuseries. I don't think Scotty is real pleased with the docuseries. Uh, I do think there's a fair amount of truth in that. Uh, I don't know if you can go so far. Scotty would know this better than I. I don't know if you would go so far as to say um, that team would have won better without Michael being the way he was. Michael was pretty organic. It was not contrived. He, When he came in the league as a rookie, he was embarrassing all the veterans. Uh, with the Bulls. And so, um, I, I, you know, you just can't separate these things. Uh, during that season, I, I found out about all the stuff going on. And the last dance didn't really address it. It didn't get into the real reason Jerry Krause broke up the team. But Blood on the Horns had that reason. And I had to go to Michael. And I had to, I had to ask him about being a bastard. And I had to figure out how much, because I had gotten to the point where I could get one-on-one -on -one time with him. And I had to ask him face-to-face -face about this. And I said, well, I'm going to couch it this way. I'm going to say, Michael, everyone tells me you're a great team leader, but they also say you're really harsh and that, you know, you use a really wicked sense of humor on the team bus to police the roster. And he said, yes, it's true. I can be hard, but I'm not being hard. I'm not treating the guys this way just to treat them this way. I'm doing this to find out if they can stand up to the pressure of being on the floor with me in a lot of really intense moments. And uh, I think that's different than what Scotty was, was saying there somewhat. There, there was a lot of pressure, and he said, I am only happy to apply that pressure to find out. And he was all over people. But, you know, uh, Jeff Van Gundy was coaching the Knicks when my book came out, and he read it, and he bought like 18 copies and gave one to every player remotely connected to the organization. And he said, this is the problem you have in the modern NBA when everyone's making millions. You don't have someone who's willing to piss everybody off to get in people's faces and to say the things they need to say. 
Uh, I, I've just spent the last three years writing the uh, the life of Magic Johnson. And, uh, you know, he competed a lot against Julius Irving in the 76ers. And Julius Irving is one of the most incredible figures in the history of the NBA as a player and as a person. And the truth of the matter was that the Sixers had a lot of flaws and they should have won more than they did. And Julius Irving was simply too nice a guy. And he, he led by example, but he would never. And it extended to the coach who was lax about practice, teammates who were lax about practice. And Julius Irving did everything he could every time he stepped on the floor, except get in people's faces and basically be an asshole and lead his team. And so, you know, there's another side to it. And I think that it's it's you can't just dismiss it in the introduction to a book. So it sounds to me, it sounds like that's a pretty nuanced opinion, um, a little bit of truth on both sides. But something you mentioned there kind of piqued my interest because something that was not um, objective in any way, shape or form was the last dance. And that pretty much had everyone's attention during the pandemic as sports were widely shut down. And when you look at what The Last Dance was, I think all three of us here can pretty much agree that was just Michael Jordan propaganda, pretty plain and simple. Like, And that's fine, he's allowed to do that, but, you know, it, it was not, I think, the the actual deep dive into the bulls that I think a lot of people, myself included, were expecting. But when you look at some of these comments that Scottie Pippen is making, even outside of Michael Jordan, um, you know, undercutting the impressiveness of the flu game, um, levying charges about Phil Jackson being racist because he drew up a play for Tony Kukoc, like it feels like there's more than just like some sour grapes coming from this documentary. Would you agree with that sentiment? Well, you know, uh, if Scotty had such genuine thoughts, he could have kept him kept them to himself. But I, I, I would say that if he kept them to himself, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The fact that we are having this conversation means that he's able to set the agenda, uh, i.e., to get everybody to think about his book because of of the statements. I know that. Back in the day when I and I had access to both Phil and Scotty a, a, a tremendous amount that season, they were in a war with Jerry Krause and they were eager just to pile the, the hurt on Krause any way they could. And they knew that my book was going to be explosive. And so th- they told me a lot. But um uh, you know, Scotty's selling books. I mean, that's part of the economics of, of book publishing. You have, uh, particularly for nonfiction, you have to have newsmaking, interest-grabbing content in the book often, um, and at least that's one of the fast ways to. Uh, to gain publicity, to get widespread attention to the book. And I think Scotty has done that. Uh, You know, there was a time, uh, and I have to develop a lot of book projects, and I have to look at different 
personalities. Uh, I've done this a lot over the years. I've written more than 70 books. I'm pretty good at figuring out what good content is and what, what editors and publishers will buy. And people for the longest time weren't particularly interested in Scotty Pippen. He was a number two. They really weren't aware of all of the potential he offered in terms of a book. Whether so, you like what he said or didn't, but with the last dance and with all this attention, the one thing that has happened that is has benefited Scotty tremendously is that the industry was very interested in what he had to say. And as a result, he's made, uh, and he's had a lot of financial, excuse me, a lot of financial troubles, but he's uh, had a, a good splash with this book. I don't think I don't think anyone would be necessarily surprised to hear that Scottie Pippen may be pushing books. Um, but the, some of the stuff that he is saying in there is quite explosive. And as someone who had access to those teams, I am legitimately curious, like some of the stuff that he's saying, especially as it regards Phil Jackson and in the in the racism. Um, was that anything that you ever encountered or saw in your time well, around those teams? The Phil Jackson, I knew, had tremendous regard for Scotty. Now, everybody was pissed off because Scotty did not get the surgery he needed and, and really imperiled that last season. But Phil and Scotty had tremendous regard for each other. There was no question of that. Phil had done so much to develop Scotty as a player. And Scotty himself had done an awful lot of work and had become just an incredible player. I think, though, that um, and I, I, it's kind of hard to describe Phil as a racist. You know, he was raised around Native Americans as a child, and he, um, you know, he's always had tremendous appreciation for them. I, I think that he's had, always had um, Great appreciation for his African-American teammates. I think he's been a great coach for um, any number of African-Americans. I don't think Phil, though, is going to get in the business of defending himself as whether he's a racist or not. Most Caucasians in this country, uh, out of this culture, have a skewed view of race. And so I, I, I think it's kind of hard for a... Uh, a white male in this culture to to stand around and try to defend himself against racism. The option is not to do it, is not to attempt to do that. I do know that Phil Jackson, Jackson has been deeply, deeply wounded by these allegations. Uh, however, um, I, you know, I think Scotty expected to get that shot. Yeah, Scotty was the guy who had played brilliantly that season, that first season after Jordan uh, 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 departed abruptly right before training camp, the 1993-94 uh, season. And I think Scotty, having played number two and, and having uh, had Jordan kick his ass all those years in practice as a young player, when Phil would make Scotty go up against Michael every day in practice, uh, Scotty traveled a hard road to get to what he did. And so he expected to get that shot. Phil Jackson 
being impartial, figured Tony Kukoc, who had hit a bunch of game-winning shots that season, or, or several, decided Kukoc was the guy to hit it. I, I think the result uh, justifies probably what Phil did. But that may be one of those things that helps Scotty sell a few books. So when everybody uh, talks the Bulls, uh, Roland, they all talk, of course, about the 95-96 Bulls, the 72-win team, uh, greatest team in history. And I guess, what are your thoughts? Is that the greatest team in history? Well, you know, um, it's like we're digging up fossils here. Uh, I traveled with that team extensively. I wrote the, the team's championship book. I would say that they played in an era uh, that was decidedly different. They played the tri- they ran the triangle offense. And it's an offense that controls tempo and it, it, achieve, it achieves unbalanced floor that makes it virtually impossible to double team a guy like Jordan or a guy like Kobe Bryant on the weak side, on the back side of the defense. Uh, the triangle did a lot of things, but the NBA eliminated the triangle. There was a lot of hatred for the offense. There was a lot of hatred for Phil Jackson. He was an arrogant coach. And he, he won those 11 rings using the triangle. And then he bragged about it in his bio. And Tex Winter, Phil's longtime assistant coach and my dear friend, said that, told me many times that Phil had stirred up tremendous animosity. Well, when the NBA uh, trimmed the timeline from 10 to 8 seconds and then trimmed the reset on the um, uh, offensive rebound from a, a new 24 to a mere 14 seconds, the rules practitioners effectively eliminated the offense. So the entire game that both Jordan and Pippen played, and Pippen was a master with this offense, the entire game they played, you can no longer run it in the NBA now. It's impossible. Phil Jackson didn't even understand what had happened when he went to New York and he wanted Derek Fisher, his coach, to run the triangle with the Knicks. The time had changed. Mm -hmm. The uh, coach in the Philippines who went over all this with me, Tim Cohn, won 22 championships in the Philippines with the triangle. He had to quit running it because what was basketball doing? It was speeding up the game artificially so that players could score more points. It would drive even further uh, fan interest. High scoring has always been the thing that drives fan interest. It's a fantasy component. It does all these things, and indeed, profits soared. Tex Winter, when he began explaining to me what the NBA was doing at the time, sort of gave me a term. I wrote an article about it. It was called the death of defense. Well, defense, uh, you know, is still around, but the the game has changed so dramatically. You, no, I worked. hear you on that fantasy aspect, Roland. You're you're talking to a guy here who just oh, doubled up his $3 in a DraftKings <laughs> contest last night, uh, riding the on the money. back of Paul George there. So... The money you don't need to exploded. tell me about the fantasy aspect. I get that big time. Right. The money has exploded. This next generation is heavily involved. 
the, the one difficulty is that game no longer exists that Jordan and Pippen played. And the new game is very different. Uh, I, I had a fun time thinking about, I did an article a while back about how somebody invents a time machine and you would get one of the Warriors teams that was so good to go play that Bulls team. And one of the problems would be Steve Kerr would be coaching on one team and playing on the other. Paradox, but, right? Does the court yeah. explode if they touch each other? I mean, there's there's a lot of things you got to talk through in that scenario. You you cannot literally touch. Now, in the post, you can beat the crap out of people, but you literally, in today's rules, uh, you really cannot touch an offensive player driving to the basket in any way. And of course, when Jordan played, uh, well, when, when I coach, I used to coach basketball and, you know, you used to bump the cutter coming through the lane. It was like a, a, a linebacker with a forearm shiver to whoever's coming through the lane, all the bump the cutter drills, all the stuff that used to be standard practice and defense is all kaput. It's all outlawed. And so, all of the people I interviewed for that story, who would win this game if we got the time machine? The answer always came to this. What rules would you play under? Would you play under the modern rules with no defense? Or would you play under those rules that the Pistons used to just slam Jordan around all the time? Roll so, we go. I've got it. I've got it. All right. Seven game series. Seven game series. Warriors had the better record. So four games in 2016 and three games in 1996 <laughs> with 1996 rules four home games time in advantage. 2016 rules bam yeah home time yes home time advantage well said well you know phil jackson had a way of insulting people and he said steph curry would be sort of like chris jackson uh, you know, a player who came out of LSU and, and was a, a high-scoring player, but never really a factor. It is worth noting that all the teams that ever played, all the up-tempo teams that ever played against the Bulls lost miserably. And Tex Winter had a saying, you can hurry to a butt-whipping. And, and now that they would run a control break, but they, they were not going to get out. They, they would... Scottie Pippen was the master at controlling the tempo of the game. And uh, so that's a different world. The things we're talking about here are extremely hard for fans today to even understand about the triangle. But basically, the triangle was a two-guard front. That means you had two guards parallel, slightly staggered to initiate the offense. Of course, Today, and often in the past, mostly teams run one-guard fronts, that one guard being a point guard. Roland, what I'm mm -hmm. hearing from you, um, granted not as um, eloquent as you put it, is that if you picked up that era Chicago Bulls and you drop them to the NBA right now, uh, they're probably losing a seven-game series against the Orlando Magic. Am I hearing that correctly? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you, there's the X factor, and we all know what the X factor is. Cole Anthony. Mo Bamba. <laughs> I, 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 this, a seven-game series against the Warriors, too. 
I, it's it's hard to describe the fear that Jordan could strike into the NBA and veteran players even. And that's why some of the reaction to him could be so physical and violent. He had this ability to humiliate and and, uh, eviscerate opponents. And uh, the Bulls were an incredibly good defensive team. They uh, often had great ball pressure. So I don't know, you know, I'd have to think about that. Now, the Warriors are a really, really good defensive team. And so, I don't know. I think they'd sort of have to, you'd have to, I think if if you had a time machine, you'd put the two teams in a league under one set of rules and let them play a season. I I, I will say this. The the three-point shooting uh, that Steph Curry has brought to the game has, has changed everything. It's done two things. It's it's shown that he's the greatest shooter of all time. The guy's unbelievable and that nobody else is like him. And the rest of the league is trying to act like him. And we have a lot of shitty basketball because people <laughs> are taking all these bad shots. And many nights it's undamn watchable. But Steph Curry, you can watch him every night. He's cool. He's all right. He can do that. And there are a couple other, obviously, very fine shooters, but there are an awful lot of people taking threes that, and the volume of threes they take, it's ridiculous. There are a lot of threes being taken out there, but I'd like to expand this uh, time machine idea. And I think a great team translates across to other areas. And I wonder, could the 96 Bulls sell more albums than Instinct? <laughs> I've got I've got Scotty and JT. That's a push. Um, Jordan, he's blowing the doors off of JC. Um, and Dick Dicky Simpkins, that guy's gonna out Kirkpatrick, Chris Kirkpatrick, any day. <laughs> Jordan is totally Justin Timberlake in this scenario. What are you talking about, Nathan? <laughs> I mean, look. I think that's how what Scotty would say. So I'm I'm rolling with Scotty on that. Scotty and JT, that's a push. So I think I think the '96 Bulls would sell more albums than In Sync. You, you know, yeah, I agree. But I do think, um, speaking in general, not just in the not just in the cultural showdown, Jordan just had this capacity to dominate uh not just the game dominate the people he was around and you know i as as amazing as steph curry is and the guy basically is a virginia he's from a virginia family he's local um No player ever had either the ferocity or the charisma that Jordan has had. And I've been doing the NBA a long time. And 
you know, I've covered Steph's games. I've covered his finals games. He's a, an amazing interview. If you, there was a time if you'd ever told me that an an MVP of the NBA would come from Davidson, I would have laughed and laughed and laughed. And he, Steph, is so legit. The Jordan, Jordan's just another. He, he's an alien. He's another dude, man. I, and he, I, it, they all, everybody wanted to, uh, it, everybody wanted to be in his presence and he wanted everybody around him. You know, I, is this X rated? This, this um, show we're on is, yeah, this, let it fly, buddy. Well, you know, the proposal for my book, Michael Jordan, the life had this section that it started called the pig fuck <laughs> and, and the pig fuck was Tim Hallam, the PR director for the bulls would describe the mass of media that would get around Jordan, you know, it'd be, and this was 90. So it wasn't, it wasn't like there were 50 websites, but it was, it was nuts. I mean, there were all these international journalists, Chicago was an insane scene. And the pig fuck, he would describe all these overweight reporters squeezing around uh, cameras, microphones, notebooks, the whole works. It's, it was just ridiculous to, to see the pig fuck, even more ridiculous to be in the middle of it. And so uh, I was describing that and Jordan would wear, would get immaculately dressed after the game and he would come out in, in these suits and they would always try to get him to go to the podium to talk to everybody. He said, nah, he wanted to head right into the pig fuck. He wanted everybody pressed up against him, asking him questions. He wanted the intimacy of the pig fuck. And it was just, um, I, I, I think it was just the full extension of the power he had over everything. And, you know, he didn't see this coming. He, uh, the most amazing play I still ever saw him make was blocking Ralph Sampson's shot in University Hall. I was sitting on press row and he hit the ball. He smacked that ball. Everybody on press row jumped like they'd hit a bump or something. It scared them all so bad. And uh, it, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen still. And I was sitting with Jordan in the locker room in Charlotte 15 years later in 98 during the last dance season. He, he was sipping coffee out of a styrofoam cup, getting ready to play the game. And we were just chatting a bit by that point. You know, I'd really sort of gotten the ability to get those, those little slices of one-on-one -on -one with him. And I asked him if he remembered that block. And he looked at me, he said, remember it? He said, I had no idea I could do that. I was stunned as everybody else. And I think that is one of the things that I find most amazing about Jordan. His, his career was really discovering his personal discovery of all the shit he could do. And that he really did not have a full and clear idea of just how great he was, except as it unfolded. 
So, Roland, listening to all of this, it is very clear that you have a ton of insight into this world, into this era, into this team. Um, but I, I can't help but be curious. Um, if you called any any person from that era right now or from that team, and on their caller ID it popped up Roland Lazenby, how many of those folks do you think would answer? Well, you know... When the season ended, I had great conversations uh, with Scotty Pippen, Steve Kerr, Ron Harper. You know, I'd get them by phone, and, and that continued. Um, I got into, I started teaching at Virginia Tech uh, not long after that, and it really changed. I, I had taught at Radford University. I was on a two-day-a-week schedule, with left, which left me about four days a week to travel and cover the NBA. And I I spent my life doing that. But when I went to that three-day-a-week schedule at Virginia Tech, it really limited my travel. Um, once the Jordan book came out, Jordan was so pissed at me. Um, now, Steve Kerr helped me tremendously. All kinds of people helped me with that book. Luke Longley said, you know, you, you've nailed it. You, you've portrayed Jordan as the harsh asshole he is, and yet still this amazing person. Why, why was Jordan pissed at you? Um, there's a lot of family stuff that uh, really explains a lot of the the internal strife in the Jordan family. Now, uh, his sister wrote a book about it and published it independently. And I wasn't sure if I was going to include any of that. But when I went to the UNC library to do research, they had her book on special collection. And I, when I read and studied her book, I found it to be very credible, but it made allegations against his father. And his father had been in trouble. His father was a beloved figure in Chicago but and, and beloved by Michael, but a nefarious character all the same. And so this is all further complicated by the fact that his father was a murder victim and that Michael suffered mightily from this it 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 is a uh, it it is a terrible thing and, and i didn't dwell on all of this but i explained the dynamic in michael jordan the life and uh, you know it's one of those decisions i didn't hype it it wasn't as it wasn't hyped as part of the publicity for the book. There was no, you know, nothing like what Scotty's doing now. We didn't. I didn't do press interviews about it. Um, but I didn't feel I could leave it out. It explains so many things. And, um, you know, he's just, you know, Michael still doesn't talk to Sports Illustrated. And they never got near the story about his father. And so, um, but yeah, you know, I see uh, if I saw those guys, the ones that I knew pretty well, 
Uh, Steve Kerr helped me tremendously with Michael Jordan the life. Um, other teammates had always been good. Uh, Pip and Ron Harper. Um, uh, you know, Dennis Rodman, very cordial. All right, so let me go full Stugatz here. If you called, say, Steve Kerr or Scottie Pippen right now, would they pick up? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I have Steve Kerr's cell phone number. I, I, I don't, I don't think he would, but I, I wouldn't expect him to. Can Steve we try? Kerr, huh? Can we try? <laughs> no, I don't do shit like that. He's in the middle of a season. I, you know, I, I'll go up and say hi to him in person if I'm at an NBA event. If I'm at the All Star Game, I'll. But I, you know. My whole approach, um, I was always very low-key. First of all, I'm there with all the daily media. My, I have my press credential. And, and I do some magazine work, but I'm not there reporting for the uh, – now, I, my book ended up being excerpted in uh, for 10 straight days by the Chicago Sun-Times with a big blow-up on the um, – you know, they used to have the machines where you get the newspapers. They had the whole placard, blood on the horns and all. It was a huge thing. But um, I'm not that guy, you know. Um, you have seating on the floor for the most essential NBA media, and then everybody else is in auxiliary seating. There, there are times over the years, and I started back in the day when it wasn't real crowded, but but I've been an auxiliary kind of guy most of my life. And I'm not trying to uh, – I just move in a very low-key fashion. And I take my time getting to know people. But, you know, they were using me too. They, they were in a war with Jerry Krause. And, uh, you know, I have recording – on the record recordings with Phil Jackson where he's saying – yeah, you know, Michael, last thing he likes to do before he goes on the floor is go back and sit on the john. And God, I'll never understand it, but Jerry Krause and his need for intimacy. Well, when Michael's back there on the john, Jerry Krause likes to go back and sit on the john too, back there with Jordan. And so Phil is telling me this stuff on the record. Oh, yeah. No, and it, it really was it really was part of a whole series of things. Blood on the horns just broke all this news about the Bulls. It just it just blew it all out. And a lot of it was Phil. Phil just was busting Jerry Krause up so bad. And so then I took the proofs of the book to Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause. And they went berserk when they read all the stuff Phil had said. And they started busting Phil up, and they brought up all this stuff nobody knew, really dumb stuff Phil had done, and uh, uh, all this very private stuff about Phil and his personal life and his shortcomings as a human being. It, it was really ugly. Um, I... Uh, you know, I ended up being the messenger. So I, 
you know, and, and Jordan was pissed at everybody who talked to me for, for Michael Jordan life, I assume. Eddie Pinkney was great. Eddie Pinkney is an old friend of mine from my days doing all my Celtics work. And I was down at the pre-draft camp in Vegas. And Eddie had helped me a lot for my book. He really was just great. And Eddie looked at me and said, what the hell did you do? You got me in trouble, man. He was pissed. And, but see, nobody wants to run a foul of MJ. So who's, uh, who's, who's going to be solving more mysteries? The Mystery Incorporated gang with Scooby-Doo or the 96 Bulls? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I've got Luke Longley and Benny the Bull being way more focused than Shaggy and Scooby. They're not getting distracted. Steve I'm with you on that. Big time leader more than Fred. I mean, get out of here, Fred. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to go with the Bulls here again. I, I'm with you on that. Uh, although Luke Longley, you know, he was such a gentle soul. They were all in his shit. The Tex winner would yell at him and get furious with him. And, you know, Luke, uh, he's got a documentary out. And I, it's somebody just sent it to me, I, and I watched this. It's really good, and it looks a very d- large human being, a giant, and just a really, really good guy. So um, I'm not sure Luke. They they had to work to keep Luke in that uh, furious mode, I guess. That Jordan demanded. Roland, who from that 95 Bulls team would be most likely to get high with Scooby in the back of the mystery machine? I would say the worm. <laughs> worm used to make jokes about getting high with Phil. So, uh, you know, and I I used to do all the piston stuff. So I'd known Dennis for a good while. And he, Dennis was, I went to Spurs camp in 94 just to observe the the chemistry or lack of between uh, Dennis and David Robinson. And then Dennis was bankrupt. He, you know, he was, he always went to Vegas and shot these $50,000 craps and just ridiculous. Like he didn't believe he deserved the money he'd made. And so he was bankrupt when the bulls brought him in not in the fall in 95, but he made $15 million off the floor in endorsements. And all the women in Chicago, Bill Smith, the team photographer is my good friend. And Bill traveled everywhere with Dennis and all the bars, all the crazy stuff. And all the, um, all the women in the bars in Chicago had this thing of showing Dennis their tits. And Bill had this whole photo album of women, you know, bearing their breasts for Dennis Rodman. And Dennis was, uh, he was crazy. You know, he had the wedding dress routine he did there. But he they had uh, worm uh, suckers and all kinds of, I, you just can't describe all the, the paraphernalia and stuff. Chicago went berserk over Dennis Rodman. And so he was no longer bankrupt. After that, he made started making lots of money but dennis dennis would be the the wild and crazy one do you think um the 96 bulls would be a better group of disciples than the 12 disciples i've got uh, dennis i'll Rodney. tell you 
I'll tell you, um, boy, that's that's a tough one. I, uh, um, I, I I don't know. I I, I couldn't imagine. Uh, I was going to call my my Jordan book Black Jesus. Of course, that was <laughs> really the name for Earl the Pearl Monroe. But Tim Hallam, the PR director for the Bulls, always called Jordan Jesus. And he would walk in and look at his publicity assistants and say, have you seen Jesus today? Because he's, you know, he's one enough Jordan was around. Uh, he really was Jesus. I mean, people would just lose their minds in his presence. It was ridiculous. All the kind of. I mean, I've got I've got Rodman. I know he can box out Judas from the collection box. Right. I know I know Ron Harper is going to doubt circles around Thomas, Luke Longley, and of course Luke. That's a push. I think Luke Longley's got a couple gospels in him. I think um, Scotty's Judas. So. I do know that much. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Roland Lazenby. He has written more books than I could care to count. Um, Certainly than you could care to read. (laughs) (laughs) I highly recommend you check out his stuff, especially if you have been interested in this conversation, especially Michael Jordan, The Life. For my money, it is the quintessential documentary. Not documentary, what am I saying? Uh, It is the quintessential biography of Michael Jordan. Roland, if the people have enjoyed hearing you, your stories, your antics you've put up with us, um, which we really appreciate... Um, where can they find you and what should they be looking out for? Um, I'm at Lazenby on Twitter, L-A-Z-E-N-B-Y. Sometime next year, my Magic Johnson biography. Now, these books are, I'll warn you, they're 600 plus pages usually that I write. So you better like to read. But um, for some reason, you know, people can't get enough Jordan, uh, the Jordan books in 20 languages. So you can get, you can get a hold of me with my Twitter account. And, um, it's a, it's a good way to reach me. And, uh, people can find your books anywhere books are sold, I assume. Uh, yeah, man, they're everywhere. Every language, just about every, it seems like every six months, another language, uh, is being licensed for translation. It's uh, it's been sort of ridiculous. Well, in doing my my research for this interview, I saw that uh, Michael Jordan: The Life in 2015 was named the uh, Polish Sports Book of the Year. So you will always, oh, I'm sure Polish you have that people. trophy plastered prominently on the mantle. Right, and they did the same thing. They later translated "Blood on the Horns" from you know my '98 book. And uh, the, 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 they, they just love it, the NBA. Uh, they're nuts about sports in general and literature. And it's a huge country. So, no, that's a good one. Uh, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, to any of our, our Polish listeners out there, Roland Lazenby, this is your guy right here. Roland, yeah, I've thank got you. a Polish edition on the shelf here somewhere. I always think. Hey, you guys take care. Nathan, good to meet you. Good to meet you. Thanks, Roland. We'll have to do this again. All right, great to catch up, man. All right, have a good one. See you.